Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, uh, turn in your Bibles to Numbers 32. As this evening we conclude our series on the book of Numbers, and we will be reading the first 33 verses in this chapter. Let's hear God's powerful, inerrant word. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and said to the chiefs of the congregation, Atareth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliea, Sumbum, Nebo, and Beon. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan." But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskol and they saw the land, they discouraged the heart of Israel and the people from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except the Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun. For they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. And then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms, 
ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. And we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Moses said to them, If you do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then, after that, you shall return and be free of the obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what you have promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before the battle is before the Lord to battle, as my Lord orders. So Moses gave the command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over you with armed pass over you armed, then shall they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses said to them, to the people of Gad, and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. Let's pray together. O gracious Father God, Lord, how we thank you and we praise you for your word. For your, we know that your word is powerful and alive and able to change hearts and, Lord, able to renew minds. And through your word, we see ourselves and we see who you are of your justice and of your mercy. So as we look at your word tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, this evening we conclude our series on the book of Numbers. And as we do, chapter 32 is a fitting chapter to end on. Why? 
Because this encounter between Moses and the clans of Gad and Reuben crystallizes many of the core prevailing truths that are woven throughout the book. Truths that focus on the character of God, of who he is, and also of our own nature in relationship to him. Throughout Numbers, we see the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant people, contrasted against their continued failure to live wholly devoted to him. And yet, despite their failure, the Lord, solely, completely out of his grace, moves history along to fulfill his covenant promise to his people that he would be their God and that they would be his people, that he would establish them as a nation from which all the nations of the world would be blessed. He promised them a glorious future and an amazing inheritance. And in chapter 32, we see get glimpses of these realities of who God is and who we are, and what he has done for us. As chapter 32 opens, we see the failure of God's covenant people to live wholly devoted to him. We see their failure. In verses 1 through 3, the tribal leaders of Gad and Reuben approach Moses with a request. They say to him, you know, Moses, we are encamped right now east of the Jordan. And just look around, look around us at this conquered land. Why, it's perfect, absolutely perfect for all of our livestock with its fertile plains. There is abundant provision for them here where they can graze to their heart's content and lack for nothing. And as any real estate agent will tell you, everything is about location, location, location. And right here, this expansive, fertile plain is prime real estate for us herdsmen. Now, at first glance, their request seems reasonable, logical. Why not stay put? And go and, and why go another mile? The land is perfect for livestock, and they have a lot of livestock, so why go anywhere else? And in their request, the tribal leaders reveal their divided hearts and their lack of commitment to receiving what the Lord would give them in the promised land. The Lord establishes the boundaries of nations, and he had in mind that all of the 12 tribes of Israel would be united together as one in one area west of the Jordan River, which formed a natural boundary line for them. Yet this, these two tribes, they wanted to settle right where they were, east of the Promised Land, because it seemed to them the best that they could get. And in their response, their response has a certain irony to it, doesn't it? For on the one hand, they acknowledge the grace and faithfulness of the Lord to them. Notice how they frame their request in verses 3 and 4. 
They list the conquered Amorite cities that were now in possession of God's people. And notice who they give it credit to for the victory in verse 4. They say it is the Lord who struck down these cities. They don't take credit for it, even though they did the fighting. It is the Lord who gave them the victory, referring back to what they experienced in Numbers 21 when the Amorite king Shion and King Og battled against Israel, and the Lord gave Israel victory over their enemies, and then Israel possessed the land, which now these two tribes want to make their permanent residence. So on the one hand, they acknowledge the grace and goodness of the Lord in clearing out the land of their enemies, these great plains fit for livestock. But their devotion to the Lord only went so far. And the kicker comes in verse 5, when they tell Moses, do not take us across the Jordan. What? Do not take us across the Jordan. What do you mean? After all these years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of waiting for the previous rebellious generation to die off in the wilderness out of judgment for their lack of faith because they were afraid to enter the promised land, what does this new generation say? After all the wandering and the waiting, when they are just miles, just miles from the promised land and posed, poised to inherit it and enter it, what do they say to Moses? Thanks, but no thanks. We just want to stay here. They are willing to forgo what the Lord may have had for them in the promised land in return for what was immediate and right before their eyes because it seemed right in their own eyes. And and the book of Numbers makes this very clear right there in verse 1 when it records that the people of Gad and Reuben saw that the land of Jazer and Gilead was a place for livestock. Their faith in the Lord was short-sighted. They had decades after decades to observe his faithfulness, his loving kindness, and his grace to them, as well as his judgment. And yet, despite their dynamic relationship and experience with the Lord, they couldn't see beyond their present circumstances. They couldn't trust that he would supply them with anything in the promised land like what they could see right before them. So they decided, let's grab what we have now, and we better just settle right here. And in doing so, they were willing to settle for less than the Lord's best. He had for them the promised land. But they didn't quite believe the promise. They saw only the immediate before them, but they lacked the clearer vision of a firmer faith. 
and their request revealed that their lack of their their request revealed that their lack of wholehearted devotion to the Lord as they asked Moses if he, if they could just stay right where they were that seeing only what was in front of them and not seeing beyond the Jordan not believing that the Lord had anything better for them in the promised land beloved what a cautionary tale this is for us we can readily see ourselves in these two clans how their actions and their attitudes are at times mirrored in our own lives and hearts in our own relationship with the Lord in circumstances where we do not wholeheartedly trust him or his word but are willing to settle for less than his best for what is expedient, for what seems right in our own eyes. Well, we can see how their request triggered Moses. Starting in verses 6 and 7, he rebukes them severely and rightfully so because all they could see was the land and they couldn't see how it would affect others. All they could see was their own advantage, but they couldn't see how their request could affect their fellow Israelites because they were focused solely on themselves and their own needs. So Moses basically tells them in verses 6 and 7, so you want to sit here living on easy street while your brothers go off to fight in the promised land. Now, how do you think they're going to react to such an agreement, such an arrangement? Well, let me tell you, you will discourage them from entering the promised land, for they will say to themselves, why should we fight and risk our lives to cross into enemy territory beyond the Jordan while these two clans sit here safe and secure, sitting pretty? You know what? they will say, we will stay here too. And Moses had every reason to be gravely concerned about the situation because he had heard this song before. Back in Numbers 13, the spies who went into the promised land sang a similar tune. All the spies except for Caleb and Joshua And these spies discouraged the older generation when they came back by saying, no, no, we can't go in. The people here, the people there across the Jordan are too strong for us. They're too powerful. So starting in verse 8, Moses gives these fickle faith followers a brief history lesson And he reminds these two tribes of why they had been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years out of judgment for their unbelief and the lack of faith of the first generation. The Lord had rightly judged the first generation with perfect, absolute, perfect justice. Since they refused to enter the promised land, they would die in the wilderness since they preferred to remain in the wilderness rather than follow the Lord in faith. So dying in the wilderness was a fitting judgment 
for a fearful and faithless generation. And now in this younger generation, Moses hears the same tune. The underscore is a little different. The older generation didn't want to go into the promised land based on fear, but Gad and Reuben didn't want to go in because their faith was fickle. They didn't believe that there could be any better place for them than where they were at the present, and that they knew better than the Lord himself. They wanted to be comfy, so they were willing to compromise and not go the extra mile into the promised land. And starting in verse 14, Moses warns them that the fate of their fickle faith would be the same as their forefathers. You are just like them. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You are a brood of sinful men, he said. And if you were to do this, the result would be the same. You would cause your fellow fellow Israelites to sin, to not follow the Lord, and your actions would result in further judgment against the whole nation. And the Lord would be just in judging your unbelief. And Moses gets to the core issue of what they were like. They were expressing a lack of devotion to the Lord. And in explaining to them what was at stake should they continue down this path, Moses reveals something of the Lord's character as well. And so this chapter not only reveals our own character, what we are like in relationship to the Lord, but this chapter also highlights the Lord's character as well. The Lord is faithful to bless his people, as he did throughout Numbers with his protection and with his constant provision. And he is also faithful to judge them as his justice is exacting and pure, as he is holy and pure. And in the historical counts in Numbers, we see time and time and time again how the Lord judged the Israelites for their unbelief and for their rebellion. We see this in Numbers 13 and 14 when the first generation failed to move forward into the promised land when they had the opportunity. They failed to follow the Lord out of fear and faithlessness, so the Lord justly judged them in an exacting way. And as we noted earlier, that faithless fear first of that first generation, they refused to be settlers in the promised land. So they ended up being wanderers in the wilderness until they died. Those who were 20 years and older who refused to trust in the Lord and go into the promised land experienced his perfect justice. And that first generation who eked out their days in the wilderness wandering, just waiting to die, they are a poignant and they are a painful reminder of those who are without hope and without Christ in the world. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 12, For after all, those who are without Christ, who are outside of Christ, What do they have? 
Scripture says that they have a life of futility. They strive and they strive and they strive, but all is vanity, as Ecclesiastes says. It is vanity. This life, just this life under the sun is vanity because in the end, what is all the striving for? You die at the end. And then you face God's justice if you are outside of Christ. And you face an eternity of separation from the love and light of the Lord who you rebelled against in your judgment. So this, beloved, is a very sobering chapter as it reflects on the justice of God. Is it not? Moses reminded the people of Gad and Reuben of God's justice. And there are other ways that this chapter highlights the justice of God in judging rebellious hearts. Chapter 32 also focuses on the justice of the Lord as it alludes to the judgment of the Lord against the neighboring pagan nations. As Numbers details, on their way to the promised land, the Lord directed the Israelites to battle against their pagan enemies, not only for their protection, as their enemies sought to destroy them, but the Israelites were to war against them as a way of judgment for the evil practices of these pagan people. After all, as we previously said, the land that Gad and Reuben requested was once under the dominion of the pagan Amorites kings, Og and Shion, who the Israelites defeated in Numbers 21. And in defeating them, the Israelites were not only defending themselves against these enemies, but they were executing the Lord's justice on these nations. And it was, you might say, a preview of coming attractions. For when they would enter into the promised land and drive out the pagan nations, which is what the clans of Gad and Reuben bound to do, to help to do, to assist their fellow brothers in driving out the pagan people inhabiting the promised land. And we see the reality of God's justice in the previous chapter, In chapter 31, the Lord directs Moses to destroy the Midianites out of judgment for enticing the Israelites to follow them in their idolatry, which is recorded in Numbers 25. And in Numbers 25, the Midianites lured God's people to worship Baal. Baal Peor, Baal Peor, which involved sexual immorality with cultic prostitutes, whom they, which they believed brought about abundant crops. And the worship of Baal also involved human sacrifice, the killing of babies as a way of appeasing their God. So these singular events in which the Lord called for a holy war was a way to rid the land of evil practices that were dark and destructive and taking innocent life all in the name of religion. The Lord wanted to clear the land and clean house of the contaminant, a pagan practice. Their day of judgment had come and the Israelites were the appointed means to execute God's justice. 
For these pagan people were against the Lord, and they were against what is true and right, and they called what was evil good. Now when we read of the Lord's commanding his people to destroy the Midianites and drive out the Canaanites, we may find it disturbing. We may ask, why would a good God call for a holy war? We ask that question until we realize how evil these people were and what a snare they would be to the Lord's people and how they deserved his just judgment for their evil practices. And when we survey the landscape of our own country and our own culture, we see that we are no better than those pagan nations which the Lord wiped out in judgment. In fact, they were pikers dilettantes in evil compared to what we see in terms of human, de human depravity in our own day. Midian was Candyland in comparison to our day. We are Midianites on steroids, for we call good evil and evil good. They sacrificed innocent children, and so do we destroy innocent children in the womb, all in the name of reproductive health care. And in some states, teens are given hormone blockers and have their perfectly normal bodies mutilated, all in the name of gender-affirming care. So when we consider that we worship a holy, pure, God who cannot tolerate evil, it is not a question of why would a good God call for a holy war, but why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't a holy, just God judge the nations for the evil, for the tyranny of totalitarian governments, for the trafficking of human, of women, and of children, for all of their inhumanity that they do? So the question we should ask is not why, but when? When will the Lord come to judge the world for its heinous evil and bring forth his justice? And when we look at our own hearts, we see too that we deserve the judgment of a holy, pure God. This is what I deserve for my idolatry and my unbelief, for my worship of lesser things. If we could see ourselves in the light of a pure and holy God, well, who could stand? Not one of us. It's very humbling to realize the depth of our spiritual adultery due to our heart's idolatry in which we seek after things to worship other than the Lord who deserves our wholehearted devotion. Scripture holds up a mirror to the human heart, and in it we see reflected the total wretchedness of it, what we are capable of, 
in destroying what is good and beautiful in God's design for humanity and warping it into something distorted and destructive, a false image of what was originally intended. So we really aren't very different from those Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, are we? We are all under a death sentence due to our sin. As Paul writes in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. And as Moses says in this chapter in verse 23, your sin will find you out. We may try to hide it. We may try to sweep it under the rug and put on a good face. But in the end, our sin will find us out and will bite us like a poisonous serpent in the end. So we all, all stand under the just judgment of a holy God. And we would all, all despair except for this that the Lord is perfectly just, yes, but in his character he is also full of grace and mercy. And this chapter not only alludes to God's justice, but it also illuminates the grace of the Lord. We see the Lord's grace right at the beginning and how the Lord blessed Gad and Reuben, their clans, with a super abundance of livestock while they were in the wilderness. And we also see the Lord condescends to their request to inhabit the land outside the borders of the promised land. He graciously allows them to do so when they exhibit a modicum of faith. They offer Moses a compromise in verses 16 through 19 in which they vow to cross the Jordan and fight with their brothers until their fellow countrymen are able to possess the promised land. In fact, they basically say in verse 17 that we will be there at the front lines hurrying before the rest of the clans leading the charge to win the land. And after the land is taken, and only after the land is taken, they will go back to their wives and children and claim the land east of the Jordan as their inheritance. And Moses, as the Lord's representative, gives the plan his, the stamp of approval. He gives it the Lord's blessing. They demonstrate a, because they demonstrate a faith in the Lord as they fully believe that the Lord will have the victory. They fully believe that the Lord will have the victory. Why else would they be willing to leave their wives and children behind and go off to battle for the land that will not be theirs unless they believed that the Lord will give them the victory and that they would return to their new home? So the Lord acts towards them in grace, and they respond in active faith. And this chapter points to a new beginning. This new generation is not like the previous generation who died in the wilderness in judgment for their unbelief. No, this generation is willing to step out in faith in response to the grace of the Lord. 
And as they step out in faith, entering the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, their step of faith into the promised land would be yet another step in the Lord's redemptive plan to save people from all nations. This new generation in Numbers 32, though fickle and feeble in their faith, were part of a grand and sweeping trajectory that would move toward establishing Israel as a nation under the reign of King David and his descendants. And yet despite the glorious victory that the Lord had given them in establishing them as a nation, the Israelites were constantly, constantly failing. They stayed true to their character. They could never live up to the law. They could never fully possess the land. They could never fully drive out the pagan practices from the land, but they became like their pagan neighbors. They continue to fail. They continue to falter in their sin. And what became clear is that they needed a Savior. They needed someone who would do battle for them, who would take on their greatest enemy, their own sinful hearts. And in the magnitude of God's grace, the Lord sought to save His people from themselves. And he revealed his plan of salvation through the prophets of old who foretold that there would one day come a king, a descendant of David, who would rid them of the judgment for their sin by taking it upon himself. This sinless sufferer would be pierced for their transgressions and he would be crushed for our iniquities and the judgment due us would fall upon him, and by his wounds we would be healed. And in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus left the glories of heaven to take upon himself our humanity. This sinless Son of God would be the perfect person to take upon himself the judgment that was ours on the cross. And on the cross... The Lord's grace and justice were wedded together. As Jesus, the sinless, suffering servant, felt the full weight of his own justice, the justice and judgment that should have been ours. And in tasting death, he removed the judgment for our sin that we deserved and that we should have experienced And then in his resurrection, he proved that he was who he said he was, the promised Messiah who lives and reigns and who gives us new life by his Spirit and eternal life with him forever. We experience through faith in Christ the gracious hand of the Lord in providing for us a way out of the dominion of darkness that surrounds us into his inexpressible light. And this is what chapter 32 points to as God's people are poised to possess the promised land, acting in faith that the Lord will give them their promised inheritance 
And we are like them. Not only are we fickle in our faith, but, beloved, we are also recipients of God's astounding grace as we await an even greater inheritance, eternal life with our Savior. This evening, we have seen through this chapter in Israel's history how it illuminates the nature of the Lord's character as both perfectly just and wonderfully gracious. And we have seen in the actions of the Israelites our own tendency towards being faithless and fickle. And yet, despite their failing and our own, we see in this chapter a glimpse of the Lord's eternal purposes, His vast and glorious plan in redeeming a lost and broken people to be His very own, solely through His grace. Let's pray together. O Father God, how we give You all praise and glory and honor. Lord, what can we say to such an astounding grace But thank you for your mercy that you have shown to us, that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you sought to save us through your sinless Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death on the cross, which brings us life, not just eternal life, but life now, in which your Spirit inhabits us and guides us and teaches us through your Word so that we become more and more transformed into the likeness of our Savior. We thank you, thank you, that you did not leave us in darkness, but that you have brought us into everlasting light and life through your amazing grace. And it's in the name of Christ we pray all these things. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.